Well, ladies and gentlemen, Kirby is not here today. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure where my brother is today. I just knew I had to cover for him. So I shall be bringing a lesson today. It's sort of like, you know, Brendan's covering someone else. It's like I told you, you know, in baseball, when your team's down and you want to save the bullpen, you pull the guy out of right field that was a high school pitcher and let him just lob it up to us. That's my job today. So. Uh, all right, guys, well, we're going to do a lesson today. Uh, we're going to, and I think this is probably going to be what I'll do with you uh, whenever I have to sub, which, again, fortunately, as much as Kirby enjoys teaching, and we've got a fine young man in Brendan Brannigan, um, it won't be too much, but I think what we'll do is we'll just go through Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so we're going to start with Lord's Day number one uh, today. And I think most of you uh, are well-versed in what that is, but just as a a memory, it was uh, drafted by a German theologian, uh, Zacharias Ursinus, um, here in the you know 1500s. Um, he was a professor of theology at Heidelberg, had studied with Melanchthon and Wittenberg, and his cat, uh, catechism here was published in 1563. Give you a little timeline idea. Remember, Luther dies in 1546, so uh, not too long after his death. Uh, Obviously, we have uh, catechisms. We have our cat kids that you guys are familiar with, especially those that have children. But really, all it is is a system of instruction relating to the first principles of the Christian religion, uh, a summary of Christian doctrine, often uh, with question and answer format, again, which you are familiar with from our studies at our church here. Uh, a lot of people might say, why do you want to study a catechism and not the Bible? And I always give the analogy of sort of like if we were going to take a class trip to New York City, right? And um, we were going to visit lots of sites. Well, you'd look at a map first before you got in the city, I hope. So you figure your way around, know where the major attractions were, maybe plan out how you're going to get to them. And then you would go to the city spend a lot more time there, and perhaps be able to navigate it a little bit better than you would just sort of going in cold. And that's uh, really the idea behind uh, the catechism, you know, similar for the creeds that have been used uh, for years as a guide. And of course, it's also a link with our past, and it uh, binds generations as generation after generation um, has studied these and have benefited it. Uh, benefited and profited uh, from them. Uh, at base, this is really just a um, catechism and explanation of the Apostles' Creed. That is the way it's designed, uh, having three parts. One, the misery of man, uh, the deliverance from misery, and then finally the third part, dealing with gratitude. So that's just a quick little background, and we shall start... Uh, with Lord's Day number one, and we have a couple of questions um, to go through here. (laughs) 
All right, and many of us are familiar with this because often at our funerals uh, that we or memorial services that we hold here at Second, uh, typically um, question one uh, is printed on the bulletin or read, and I shall read question number one. Question, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with precious blood, hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that, Without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. So let's start out and ask ourselves why Ursinus wants to begin uh, with comfort. Why comfort? What is my only comfort in life and in death? Well, I think it should be fairly obvious if we look and see that this world is fallen. And in a fallen world, often misery rules or is the rule, the default position. Uh, we know that Adam and Eve from Genesis uh, 3 lost that wonderful uh, world of uh, heaven on earth, if you will, in the Garden of Eden with fellowship with God, uh, can eat of any tree of the garden, uh, great strength and reason, yet they blew it, just like any one of us would have uh, done it as well. Of course, we look at uh, what I used to refer to as our century, um, but now in this uh, new century, uh, I guess it was, I'll just say the prior century, though the century all of us were born in here, uh, you just think about the upheaval and misery of the 20th century. Uh, though there was great technological progress, uh, think of all the blood spilt in World War I, all the mothers and wives who lost uh, sons, who lost husbands, Think of Soviet communism. Think of uh, the starvations uh, as you know, Stalin went through the uh, dekulakization uh, in Ukraine and other places. Think of the wars and people ripped from their homelands there. Of course, World War II, um, the horrors of the Nazi war machine and the Soviet uh, war machine right behind it, all those lives lost. And again, another generation of young European men uh, and, of course, many Americans uh, lost, killed there. We could go through others. We could look to Cambodia, Pol Pot. We could uh, look at examples of hunger and disease uh, that you know, our television screens uh, beamed to us from Africa and other places um, at the end of the last century. Um, so yes, this world is not an easy place. Uh, though often we see what appears to be comfort. You know, think of uh, your home, a small town, or even what appears to be the perfect neighborhood. I always joke, you know, a lot of my friends 
live over on Augusta Road and I always make fun of them. Uh, so Chuck, don't uh, y'all live over that way. But um, I make f- fun of my Augusta Road friends with, you know, as they're tearing down nice cottages and building McMansions and, you know, you drive through and I mean, it looks really nice neighborhoods you got a bunch of kids out in the street riding bikes and again very nice houses there but do we really know what's going on inside those million dollar houses well if you know uh, people um, you know that inside a lot of those houses there's strife they're rebellious children they're um uh, families dealing uh, with teenagers and others experimenting with drugs, with methamphetamine. Uh, you have Christian parents who experience rebellion of children uh, walking away from the faith. You have uh, fathers and mothers uh, looking for their comfort in, say, alcohol uh, or other things. Uh, but from the outside, man, those houses look nice, and those picket fences are painted a perfect white, uh, but on the inside, very often, uh, misery, like in the rest of the world, rules. Now, question, is the life of a Christian comfortable? We're talking about comfort. What y'all think? Is the life of a Christian comfortable? And in answering that, uh, we'll go to a couple Bible verses. If, would someone volunteer to go to 2 Timothy 3.12 and read that for us? And then another volunteer for 1 Peter 5.8. So 2 Timothy 3.12, 1 Peter 5.8. If somebody has one of those, just raise your hand. and Scott, give us one. Okay. Second Timothy three twelve. Anybody have that? That's man Jennifer. Okay, so I guess the answer is sort of like yes and no, right? Because we're uh, obviously Peter's talking to the church there about the devil. Uh, looking for someone to devour. You know, that's you and me uh, there. And that promise of persecution. We don't associate persecution with comfort, right? But what we do also associate with comfort is what Jesus has done for us. If we sit and meditate and think on that, that not only what he has done for us, but what he is doing for us today and what he's going to do for us tomorrow. Uh, That is a source of comfort. So again, it's one of those yes and no answers. We are promised troubles and toils in this world, persecutions, um, roaring beasts, looking for us to devour in a spiritual sense, Uh, not pictures of comfort. But through that, we have a picture of comfort of Christ uh, and thinking that all our sins, uh, not the part but the whole, have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. You know, praise the Lord, praise the Lord for that. 
uh, and that he is right now, uh, as John tells us, um, at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for you today. Uh, That should be a great source of comfort right there. So we start the catechism with comfort, and we see um, that it's a rough world out there. Uh, And even as a Christian, it's rough. I remember uh, a man at Perry, uh, Richard Dale Moore was his name. And Richard uh, was saved uh, during a Kairos prison ministry event. And I remember seeing Richard some time after that. I remember Richard's thinking, he said, Bill, I thought when I became a Christian, it was all going to just be clean sailing, and it was all good from there. And uh, I learned that ain't so. And I think, yeah, that's right, Richard. You know, the Bible promises us uh, trials and tribulations in this world. And uh, But to a new believer, someone that's not grown up in the church, that was sort of an epiphany that, yeah, Christian life, this ain't all easy, and we're going to be on the top of the mountain, and uh, no, it's not. And uh, But there is genuine comfort uh, that we can cling to, uh, as the catechism tells us here. So that is question number one. Question two. Nice if I had to mark these, right? Question two. Question two. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, may live and die happy? Okay, I say that again. Question. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying comfort, may livest and die happy? Answer. Three. The first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I shall express my gratitude in deliverance there. So our gratitude in deliverance. So I guess this breaks down really, you know, the first part of this is... uh, why do we need to know how great our sin is, right? Why do we need to know that? Uh, you know, that's really a first. Uh, you can talk with Ken Safford and others that do the EE, and maybe some of you have done the EE, but that in presenting uh, the gospel, uh, one of the, sort of the fundamental is that sin is a serious matter, Right? Uh, if we, if someone doesn't think there's a problem, you don't need an answer, right? Without knowledge of misery, why would uh, any deliverance be sought is what Ursinus says. Now, of course, we know that God is the sole mover, um, monergistic force in justification. Uh, however, um, in witnessing to man so the Holy Spirit uh, can change hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, uh, part of that testimony, part of that witness ought to be the seriousness of sin and what a problem uh, we have with sin. And as uh, you know, I've seen maybe Ken do some of his EE, 
uh, you know, he uses, uh, and the, they use a formula like just if you, if you, you know, commit one sin uh, every day, just one, and you know, how many days are there in a year? And how many years are an average life? So you get that, um, you know, 365 days, and then say you live 70 years. You do the math. That's a lot, right? And say, so, you know, what are you going to do about all those if you just messed up? Once a day. And of course, well, you know, that's a pretty good life, just messing up once a day. But God's standards perfection. So what do you so what's the answer about all these sins? Again, obviously one a day trip you know trivializes what we actually do each day. We all know that, but it does give a frame of reference and an example there. Um but in short, um, you know, though you know, we are like Lazarus, you know, we're dead and we need new life. Nonetheless, you could use the analogy that um, in getting someone to contemplate on these things, they need to know they're sick. Yeah, dead may be a better uh, starting point. Uh, before wheels get going about, well, what's the medicine there? Well, your medicine's Jesus Christ. It can raise you just like Lazarus from the grave out of your uh, death and misery, but you have to understand that you're a sinner and God uh, hates sin and God, uh, because of his perfect justice, cannot pardon uh, your sin. Just look away. Uh, But through Christ, his justice has been satisfied. And that price has been paid. And um, so that is a, a fundamental Ursinus teaches us that uh, we need to know how great our sin is um, in this matter. Um, and we must know about this deliverance as well. It's, uh, it would be wrong simply to do this math with someone about, you know, whether it be the 365 days a year, a hypothetical one sin, a 70-year life, and say, well, what you going to do with all that? That would be wrong, not to mention that there is deliverance, uh, that we should not despair um, because there is comfort to be sought, and that comfort is in Christ. Uh, also, it teaches us that we... Um, will not try to devise ineffectual means that we will come up with, say, some works righteous. That if I will, maybe if I'll say the rosary uh, every day, or I'll go to church every Sunday, and I'll visit that widow down the street, you know, God's going to be happy with me, and he will uh, overlook those sins. No, we don't want to leave someone in a position where they will devise some sort of falsehood uh, as a way to atone for their sins with some ineffectual method uh, that we are typically looking for, right? Because we want to fix it. Man, how can I... I'm, I'm, what, I'm not right with God? Well, i got to fix that. How can... And, I can't fix that. Uh, Christ and Holy Spirit uh, can fix that. And it's folly for me to try to work my way uh, to, into God's good graces there. So the final part of this question deals with gratitude. Um, and again, part of gratitude is tied with this last point we've just talked about, that we have to know 
if we're going to be thankful as we should to God for a way of salvation, one more than we deserve, um, to, to know that our works and duties that we do are not meritorious in gaining that salvation. Now, are we called uh, to good works? Absolutely we are. But it is part of gratitude that any works that we do should be performed out of that grateful heart towards God, not thinking that we are earning his favor or earning our righteousness. That in some, that this deliverance is a gift. It's not something that we have earned. It's not comfort that can be bought. If you, you know, seek comfort in a meth pipe, you can go buy the drug. If you seek comfort in Jack Daniels, ABC stores are open six days a week. Or if you even seek comfort in um, things that we say don't associate as bad, the gym, uh, that you're going to build up your body and be healthy and be beautiful for as long as you possibly can. Uh, again, not, nothing wrong with the gym, but we can take comfort in other things like that. Or comfort in children. Well, at least I have children. Uh, that is a blessing, but our true source of comfort is God and His Son and the Holy Spirit. And this deliverance is a great gift, and only a true knowledge of this and our lack of any effort or work makes us appreciate that it is a gift and that we cannot uh, claim little check marks that uh, look how good we are and therefore God is happy with us. To the extent God is happy with us, he is happy because we are in his son. We are in Christ and he sees Christ's works uh, as we're clothed in that robe of righteousness that we did not earn. That is uh, the happiness. That is why uh, we can take comfort because that robe cannot be taken uh, from one of God's children.